and welcome to Washoe Bursting Perspectives, our continuing series of podcasts to help you understand key issues at the intersection of business and law. Today we will look at Title IX, its history and evolution, with Kimberly Lau, chair of this college discipline practice at the New York-based law firm Washoe Bursting, where she is also a partner. Ms. Lau is truly a pioneer in this field, heading one of the few Title IX focused practices in the country. In fact, Kimberly Lau was invited to speak with the U.S. Secretary of Education back in July of 2017 as a subject matter expert on Title IX. Secretary DeVos convened listening sessions to hear not only from subject matter experts, but also groups advocating on both sides of the issue of whether the department's Title IX guidance should be amended to provide more due process, transparency, and fairness. My name is Tom Merriam. Kimberly, let's start with your background and what you've done to make this into a large practice of law. I started this practice area at my last law firm uh, where an Asian student had, um, at Vassar had approached me looking for Asian representation for a defamation matter. When he described the events of what occurred at his disciplinary hearing at Vassar, um, it concerned me because it did seem that there were other issues um, that were more pressing than merely defamation. When I looked into the matter more, I had realized that, in fact, a Title IX claim was really the focus of the issues at the heart of why he was expelled improperly at that school. And so a birth of this new area, um, practice area, really developed and I then brought it over to my new law firm at Warsha Burstein, where I practiced that primarily with my department. And before we go any further, let's define what Title IX is. It says, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So that's what the law actually says. Let's get some interpretation. You know it as well as anyone, of course. Absolutely, Tom. So under Title IX, the focus is really on whether educational institutions are in compliance. Educational institutions do not only um, involve college or dis- or university level. It can also include everything from, you know, elementary school level um, as well and high school too. And we're also talking about medical schools, graduate schools, law schools as well. Um, these institutions should not be discriminating on the basis of gender with respect to any educational program or activity. Now, historically, um, we saw a lot of cases involving Title IX litigation revolving around athletics, specifically collegiate-level athletics. And the focus of the early Title IX litigation was to equalize as between the genders, primarily for female athletes, to be represented more in college athletics. And um, over time, especially with the renderings of um, multiple pieces of guidance issued by the Department of of Education, um, we saw that there was a change and a shift, if you will, in the focus of what Title IX was going to include, and that included now sexual harassment as well as sexual assault as potentially prohibiting and in proscribing um, students' participation in educational activities on campus. And so 
Um, you'll see from the 20, 2011 Dear Colleague letter that was issued under the Obama administration, um, there was a real key focus in becoming more vigilant about how schools, primarily colleges and universities, were handling sexual harassment and sexual assault cases. And that became a difference in the thrust of the litigation that we started seeing in Title IX. You mentioned the Dear Colleague letter during the Obama administration. What exactly is that? So the Dear Colleague letter um, was a guidance letter that was issued um, by the Office of Civil Rights, and that's a sub-agency of the Department of Education. And this sub-agency oversees the enforcement of Title IX across all these campuses. And so they really... Um, advise colleges and universities of how to enforce Title IX. And through this guidance letter, we saw that the Office of Civil Rights, or OCR, um, wanted to make sure that schools were becoming more vigilant with how they were handling sexual assault, sexual harassment cases, and they, were, they wanted to address the issue of campus rape and campus sexual assault. And one of the um, items, for example, that they advised schools to do was to make sure that the standard of evidence was lower to preponderance of the evidence. Now, some schools at the time were using higher standards of evidence to adjudicate, which is to decide, these kinds of cases on college campuses. They were using clear and convincing evidence. And so this guidance letter was letting these institutions know that's not okay. You've got to lower the standard. They also wanted to make sure there was an equal right of appeal with respect to complainants as well as accused students. Um, and they also wanted to be sure that you know, there really wasn't a situation where you would have two, uh, the both parties in the same room. So they made sure there was a partition in between them. They, you know, changed the rights of cross-examination to either not exist at all or to encourage schools to not allow the accused student to actually ask the questions directly of the complainant. Now, some schools interpreted that as doing away with the right altogether, while others would use a conduit, such as a chairperson of the hearing panel, to ask those questions for the accused student during the hearing process. So those are the kinds of changes we saw from the letter and what the intent was. Reminder that you're listening to Washaw Burstein Perspectives, the podcast of the mid-sized New York law firm, Washaw Burstein. I'm Tom Merriam, and we're talking today about the evolution of Title IX with Kimberly Lau, Chair of the College Discipline Practice at Warshaw Burstein. And Kimberly, let's talk a little bit about you and your involvement in this, because as we mentioned at the start, you've really been a pioneer. Why did you decide to get involved in this and focus so strongly on this one particular area of law that really doesn't have much of a history behind it? Sure, Tom. I really got involved, um, you know, once I saw kind of how these kinds of matters, discipline matters, um, really impact the students during this process, uh, especially with respect to college, um, 
college campus life. And, you know, like I mentioned before, I represent both accused students as well as complainants. So I do have a full breadth um, and spectrum of of the story. And, um, you know, I have seen, for example, from the accused student perspective, how if there are um, challenges uh, to the process or when a school is maybe not um, following the policies as it's stated in their process, you know, it can actually have detrimental lifelong impacts and sanctions um, for these students, even where evidence is not, you know, there or is, is sufficiently lacking. And on the side of, you know, complainants, I have seen and have, um, you know, been alongside students who really feel that they aren't getting the respect or, or you know, um, protection from the school, and they need an advocate, someone who will help navigate the process for them. They need someone to help them obtain accommodations, for example, or to really understand um, what kind of, you know, damages they're suffering and what um, goals they're, you know, looking for. So I think at the end of the day, the reason I got involved with it and have stuck with it for so long is, you know, I too remember what it was like, you know, as a college student, it's hard enough, you know, you're studying, you're, you're trying to get the best grades possible, and you're trying to obviously use that and try to get to some you know, future success at some point, whether it's to some higher level of education, graduate schools, or or to just do well and get get a good job. And it's, so it's hard enough doing that without having, you know, the added impact and stress of a disciplinary process. And imagine if you had to go through that on either side, uh, not understanding the policies very well, feeling a little bit disadvantaged because you're in the student's perspective, um, you know, navigating alone, alone with, you know, middle-aged to older-aged um, administrators, um, you know, feeling that you have to somehow trust in everything that they say without really, you know, understanding your rights. And so I think that this um, resonates really well with me and why I want to continue this this role. And it's interesting, too, because you really represent all sides. You represent the complainants. You represent the accused. You represented young men, young women, faculty, administration, and really everybody there. So that gives you a very broad perspective, of course. That's right. And I think that um, it makes me a more effective advocate because of that breadth of um, perspectives and experience and also just having done it um, you know, from the inside out, I've I've been in meetings with my students and my faculty clients. I've I've been at the hearings. I've um, you know taken the late night calls. I've had weekend calls. So I'm I'm really there, um, playing a lot of roles for them. But I do help them navigate that process. Let's talk a little bit about theories of liability, if you can get into that without too much detail, just because of time here, but let's give the audience a good overview of that. So there are really four main theories of liability that um, have really been developed in the case law with respect to Title IX and um, sexual misconduct type of um, discipline hearings. So 
what you see is um, erroneous outcome, deliberate indifference, selective enforcement, and retaliation. Now, students who are in the accused student perspective generally tend to bring claims under selective enforcement as well as erroneous outcome. Um, so, you know, in erroneous outcome theories, you're really trying to establish that it's a wrong outcome, but you also have to establish that that erroneous outcome was as a result of gender discrimination, that there was some kind of gender bias um, involved. And um, so it's really two prongs. Selective enforcement, um, you don't really have to establish innocence there, but you do have to still establish that the motivating force for filing the report um, or commencing the um, discipline action or for um, ordering the type of sanctions that you received was driven by gender bias. So in those respects, they kind of overlap to, you know, to a great degree. Now, if you're in the complainant's perspective, you are more likely to bring claims under Title IX under the deliberate indifference or the retaliation theories. And under deliberate indifference, you have to establish that the harassment was so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it can be said to have deprived the person of access to the education opportunities on campus. And retaliation really involves, um, you know, participating in a protected activity, namely by actually going through the Title IX process itself, but suffering some kind of adverse effect or adverse impact um, as a result of having done that. Um, so sometimes we see that, you know, maybe grades or, or you know, coursework is, you know, not um, reflective or is, you know, there's, there's no accommodations made. Um, maybe, you know, my Princeton case, um, this is a theory that I've um, alleged on behalf of my student complainant um, who did fail out of his courses after he reported two sexual assaults to the school. They didn't want to give him continued accommodations. Reminder again, you are listening to Washaw Burstein Perspectives, the podcast of the New York law firm Washaw Burstein. Today, the topic is the evolution of Title IX, and our guest is Kimberly Lau, who chairs the college discipline practice at Washaw Burstein. And we've talked pretty much on a federal level here, but there is state law that gets involved with Title IX as well. So I would say that, you know, as far as the state laws that get involved, you know, I see that in in many different respects. So, you know, we're here in New York, and we're based in New York, and, um, you know, you'll you'll see that there's other kinds of, of state laws that it can impact the process. So we have what's called affirmative consent laws here, and um, California does too. And what that requires is a certain kind of standard to um, really get consent from the perspective of, you know, student-on-student, -student, you know, sexual misconduct cases. So if you're trying to establish that you obtain consent, you've got to do it by an affirmative standard, affirmative consent, you know, effectively a yes means yes as opposed to a no means no, so silence or um, lack of any 
no does not necessarily mean you got consent. So we're we're seeing that there's certain states who you know have a more rigorous standard, if you will, um, when it comes to these types of matters. Um, in other states, it's not necessarily um, covered um, with that specificity. I also have seen that there is a lot of circuit splits across the nation um, in the federal circuits, and you know this is definitely in in the way in which each federal circuit has treated Title IX matters is is very different, and there is no consensus, um, you know, uh, as to when a Title IX claim will survive. And um, you know, Second Circuit has its own standards, and and you know, then you'll see that it's not always adopted in other circuits. Kimberly, we've talked about the evolution of Title IX up to this point, but let's look ahead and enlighten us a little bit about that and what we can expect. So I think if, you know, you've seen some of the commentary from the U.S. Secretary of Education on the topic of college campus, you know, sexual assault, you'll notice that, and especially with respect to the most recent set of Department of Education guidelines issued on September 22nd of 2017, um, you will see that there is a push for more due process. Um, There's a a sentiment and a feeling that, you know, that was lacking from prior processes under the old administration and, and in the way in which schools had interpreted the old guidelines to for example, as I mentioned earlier, do away with a right of cross-examination. Um, you know, in, in matters involving what are largely he said, she said, or sometimes he said, he said, or she said, she said situations, it's very difficult to um, really get to the heart of the credibility finding without that kind of rigorous cross-examination. And um, there's also been issues in the past um, with lack, lack of notice, for example. So a student rocking into the process might not understand exactly what the allegations are before he or she is expected to discuss it at length and his version or her version. So those items are addressed heavily by this um, current administration, specifically the U.S. Secretary of Education. And I really do see that as um, more of a push. And finally, let's talk about the future of Title IX as a practice of law. You know, I think that it's it's ever evolving and growing, and um, you know, we see things like the Me Too movement, for example. Um, we we know that there is this. Um, it's a divisive topic, but I think it doesn't need to be because I think the common goal is that we. Um, you know, everyone wants to eradicate, you know, sexual assault and sexual misconduct. It's the way in which that gets done. Um, So, you know, this administration has shown, you know, kind of where they'd like to take it. I think, you know, um, what I would probably forecast in the future for this area in general is just more more of a need to have an understanding on both sides, on, on all sides, of, of what your rights are and how do you protect that. Um, knowledge is power, so I think more transparency, I think, and, and having more advocates available and having more counsel available during these processes, that's what I see as the future. 
Kimberly Lau, you've certainly been very transparent in explaining Title IX today. We've really gone through the window and seen all that's out there. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and insights about Title IX and college discipline law. And Kimberly, for any listeners who want to find out more directly from you, how can they do that? You can visit me at www.collegedisciplinelaw.com. You can also email me at klau, L-A-U, at wbny.com. Thank you. And you can go to WBNY.com also to read more about Kimberly, as well as for other Washoe Burstein Perspectives podcasts and for more information about the Washoe Burstein Law Firm. Thank you for listening. I'm Tom Merriam.